0: Really excited about this series. It's a what, basically what we're doing is we're looking at what we believe in this series, and so it's kind of a takeoff on um, organic eating. So a lot of people are eating organic food these days, right? So they're worried about what the, the you know the, the contaminants, the additives that are in food as they process it, right? And we're saying, man, we want to take in stuff in our body that's natural without all of the garbage because it's going to be healthier for us. Makes sense. I don't eat organically, but that makes sense to me. I understand that. But we step back and we said, man, that, you know, we talk about eating organically, physically for our body, but do we ever stop and think about what kind of diet we're on in our faith? It's a weird kind of thought, right? But what kind of faith diet we're on? What kind of food, quote unquote food, are we taking in to nourish our spiritual life, our spiritual formation, our spiritual growth? And we said, where is it coming from? And does it contain a lot of contaminants? Does it contain a lot of additives, right? Our world is full of contaminants and additives. Or is the stuff that we're taking in to shape our faith, is it pure and natural and organic? And just like we, you know, when you get produce at the store, you take it and you wash it and try to get all the, the gunk off of it, right? Do we wash the ideas and the perspectives and the opinions that we hear from people before consuming them, before accepting them as true and incorporating them into our life? We said there's all kinds of things, all, diff- all kinds of different ideas that people offer us that shape our faith or potentially shape our faith. The question is, is what we're consuming to shape our worldview, our life philosophy, our faith, is it pure and natural and contaminant-free, is it organic, or is it riddled with deceptive processing and additives and contaminants? And so in this series, we're looking at like what shapes our faith. We're looking at what we believe, what we believe in our faith. A lot of people call that our theology. Theology kind of is a word that maybe sometimes scares people. All theology means, is it's our understanding of God and God's relation to the world. That's all theology is, our understanding of God and God's relation to the world. And we said what makes our faith organic is that the foundation is the Bible. So to make food organic, there are certain requirements, right? For our faith to be organic, it's that the foundation is the Bible. That's actually where we spent our time last week, kind of digging into it. We said this, we actually believe it, right? We actually believe that this is God's word to us that it's true, that it's trustworthy, and that it's dependable. It's one of the most important beliefs that we have around here. And so last week, we kind of dug into that. What is our understanding of the Bible? What exactly do we believe about the Bible? And then we said, why do we believe those things about the Bible? We said, we don't check our brain at the door when we come in, right? Like there's good reasons to believe what we believe about the Bible. And then we ended our time saying, so what? Like, what difference does that make? Okay, we believe this is God's word to us, right? This is his truth given to us. What difference does that make in our lives? And we dug into that. I want to encourage you, if you missed last week, you should listen online. I would I really encourage you. And not because I'm the greatest preacher in the world or it's the greatest sermon in the world, but because if we get this wrong, if we get our understanding of this wrong, it affects all of the rest of our theology. It's so important that we have that we start here And then base our theology off of what we believe here. So the other thing that we've been saying throughout the series that's really, really important is that as we study this stuff, it's not just for us. There's a, there's a verse in 1 Timothy, so a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes a letter to his protege, Timothy, and one of the things that he writes to him is this, and we said this is like a foundational verse for us in this series. This series all kind of revolves around this understanding, ready? This is what Paul writes to Timothy, he says to Timothy, he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. It says, Timothy, watch your life and watch what you believe. Watch your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. And we said, how we live and what we believe matters. Like how we live our lives and what we believe about God and who he is and how he relates to the world matters. It has influences on people, especially the people that we love. And we said, we have the power by how we live and what we believe to affect people's eternities forever. And I've said that three weeks in a row, and I hope, I hope you feel the weight of that. That is, that is an incredible statement, and It's true. You have the power and I have the power by the way in which we live our lives and what we believe to affect people's eternities forever and ever and ever. And so as we dig into this stuff week after week, and this is an important series for us. We're laying our foundation as a campus. As we dig into this stuff week after week, it's really important that we understand it's not just for me. I'm not learning this stuff just for myself, my own understanding of God, but I'm learning this stuff so that I can also be used by God to communicate this in other people's lives as they come to me with questions, or they have beliefs that are contaminated, so to speak, that are twisted, that are misguided, right? So it's it's worth our time to dig into this. So last week, we talked about the Bible, right? This week, we're going to talk about God. Imagine that. Talk about God in church. Crazy, right? We're gonna talk about God, but I can tell you, I'm very excited about this because we get to dig in and we get to try to wrap our minds around who he is. God our God is an incredible God. We sing stuff like that all the time, but it's true. And so tonight we get to kind of dig into who he is and try to begin to wrap our mind around it. And my prayer this week has been that as, as I present this stuff to you, really as we, just, as we look at what this says about God, as we present this stuff, that, that our understanding of him would cause us to just sort of step back and worship. And we would step back and go, oh my, he's so big, he's so great, I'm none of those things. And we would have the only appropriate response when we're encountered with who God is worship him. It's the only appropriate response. When we begin to wrap our minds around his majesty, his glory, his bigness, his goodness, his greatness, the only appropriate response is to get back and go, oh man, I worship you. So that's been my prayer for tonight. We're actually going to end our time. So we just did one song at the beginning, right? We're actually going to end our time singing tonight a little bit more. Sometimes we do it at the front end of the service. Tonight we're going to do it at the back end, really as a response to what we're talking about here in our time. And so tonight, I want you to just, just kind of sit back, and I want you to take it in, and I want you to just try to fathom the glorious majesty of God. He's complex, right? You're, you're going to see that here in a few minutes as we dig into him. He's complex, but I want you to just sit back and let your mind try to ponder who he is, try to wrap your brain around him. And think about this. Think about the the ridiculously beautiful thought that this incredible God knows you, everything about you, the good, bad, and the ugly. He knows it all. He loves you completely and totally. And he wants you to know him. Like this transcendent, gigantic God of the universe who knows how rotten we are, loves us, and he wants us to get to know who he is. And so tonight as we dig into this, let me start with two assumptions, two important assumptions. And this is partially based on we have a limited amount of time together. You don't want to be here for two hours, right? We have a limited amount of time together. So let me, let me have two assumptions. The first assumption is that we believe in God. Okay, so we're gonna start right there. We could back up and we can say, there's lots of really good reasons for us to go, there must be a God. We've talked about a little bit of that over the weeks. But we're gonna start with the assumption that there is a God, that God exists. I actually was digging in a little bit this week into some of the, the religious polls that have been done in our country recently. So one of the, the big faith and religion pollsters is an organization called Pew, P-E-W, Pew, right? P-E-W, but Pew does research into religion and faith in America. And so their last study came out uh, it was done in 2014, it came out in 2015, and what they showed is that 89% of people in the United States states self-proclaim belief in God, 89%. Almost nine out of 10 people, when you ask them, they say, well, yeah, I believe in God, right? And so we're gonna start there tonight, and I, and I wanna encourage you, if you have questions about that, like maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're like, I don't know, you know I'm struggling with that. I got, I got some doubts about that know this, there is so much good stuff written about how, why we could trust that there is a God, that God exists. I'd be happy afterwards to point you to some of that if you have questions that way. But for our purposes tonight, we're going to start with that assumption that we believe in God. And the second assumption is based off of our discussion last week. We're going to trust that the Bible's description of God is accurate. Okay? So we're going to trust the Bible. We're going to trust that the Bible's description of God is accurate, and we're going to look at what it says about him. So last week we talked about there's lots of great reasons for us to trust the Bible. Like we don't just do it blindly. There's this incredible quantity of ancient manuscripts... The copies we have were written very closely to the originals, right? We looked at some of the archaeology last week, and we said, man, over and over and over again, what they're discovering archaeologically verifies what's written in the Bible. The Bible is one of the... Maybe the only, certainly few, maybe the only religious books that's written in a context with things going on around it. A lot of them are like, thou shalt not, don't do this, da-da-da. This is written to a certain group of people living in a certain period. And archaeologists are discovering over and over again, like, wow, that place did exist. David did have a kingdom. We discovered a coin from the ancient kingdom of David, right? So archaeologically, there's lots of great reasons to trust the Bible. One of the things we didn't talk about last week were the prophecies. That, that's an incredible reason for us to be able to trust the Bible. There's all sorts of prophecies. That there's, so there's messianic prophecies, prophecies that point forward to the coming Savior, to the coming Messiah, right? So it says this sort of thing, and then Jesus fulfilled those but then there's other prophecies, like things written in the Old Testament that just came true later in the Old Testament. I'll give you an example. This is kind of interesting. I was reading about this. I don't even know how I stumbled upon this, but I was reading about it this week. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, so Isaiah was a prophet who lived, uh, he, well, he wrote during 700 to 680 BC, so a long time ago, 2700 years ago. 700 to 680 BC, that's when he wrote, and he wrote to the southern kingdom of Israel. This isn't that important, but it's the southern kingdom of Israel and he wrote about, um, if you keep, basically he said, if you keep screwing up, if you keep turning away from God, God's going to send in uh, a country that's going to destroy, that's going to conquer and destroy and take you into captivity, which of course happened not too long after that. The Babylonians did that. But one of the things, so interesting, one of the things that Isaiah said, 680, 700 to 680 BC, he said, um, after you get conquered, because you're not going to change, after you get conquered, uh, there's going to be a guy, a king named Cyrus, who's going to come up and he's going to rebuild, he's going to free you, and he's going to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And amazingly, this is so interesting. I mean, how specific can you get, right? There's a king named Cyrus who's going to rebuild Jerusalem. About 150 years later, 558 to 530 BC, Cyrus the Great comes into power. That Persia becomes the, the kind of world empire at that point. And Cyrus comes into power and does exactly what Isaiah, about 150 years earlier, said was gonna happen because God told him it was gonna happen. It's like amazing, right? So that's just this is one example. There's lots of great reasons to trust the Bible. We're gonna start out with that assumption tonight. So we're gonna start two things. We believe in God, right? That God exists, we believe in him, and we trust the Bible. So let's jump into it. Ready? First question as we talk about God and who he is. Who is he and how does he exist? Who is God? This is a huge topic tonight. I'm going to talk fast. I'll try not to stumble over my words. Who is God and how does he exist? Well, it's interesting. This is one of the most fundamental essential beliefs in all of Christianity. In fact, all three of the main branches of Christianity are in 100% agreement about this. Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants, 100% agreement. They would all say that if someone denies this belief, they're not Christian. They diverge from Christianity if they don't hold to this belief. There's incredible unity and agreement about who is God. So, who is He? Well, let me give it uh, kind of a summary of what two guys say. One of them, the first one, is a guy named Wayne Grudem. I've talked about him a few times. This is what he says about God. God eternally exists as three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God and there's one God. All right again. God eternally exists. This is this is the agreed upon understanding of who God is for the last two thousand years. God eternally exists as three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there's one God. Now I don't know what goes through your mind when you read that. Like, maybe for some of you, you're like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've been taught that all my life. Of course I've really that. In fact, I used to cross myself. I like, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? I, of course I believe that that's who God is. Others of you, maybe they weren't a part of church growing up, and you look at that, and you're like, what the heck does that mean? God exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and yet there's one God? Like, what sense does that make? I don't understand that. Let me, let me give you another definition. This guy named Mark Driscoll. He says, God is one God, eternally existing in three persons, very similar, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of the three shares fully the one divine essence or being. God is not simply unity, but eternally exists in rich, loving fellowship as the one and only God. Sounds crazy, right? You read that. Let's just be honest. You step back and you read that and you're like, what does that even mean? Like, how could that be? How could God exist as three separate persons? Each of those three persons is completely and totally 100% God, and yet there's not three gods, there's one God. Like, what would ever lead Christians, the church, to believe that? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Let's look at what the Bible actually says. It's really interesting. When we dig in Old Testament and New Testament to what the Bible says about who God is, in my opinion, if we, if we just take an honest look at the scripture passages that talk about it, there's no other conclusion that we could come to other than that. It's crazy as it is. I don't think there's any other honest conclusion that we could come to. Let me read you a few of these passages. I, I, I got to be kind of quick with them, but I think I want you to see these. I think it's important. So the first one, this is called the, the Great Shema. So this is actually a very important verse to Jews, sort of a foundational verse to them. I'll read you the first part of it. It's Deuteronomy six four. It says, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is what differentiated Jews from the other pagan religions at the time. They were, multi, they were polytheistic. Judaism was monotheistic. It's very important. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's one God, right? How about this one? This is interesting. This is Genesis, so this is the very beginning of our Bibles, Genesis 1:26. This is when God is creating mankind. This is what it says. Then God said, let us, who's us? God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Who is us in there? Like that's, a, that's a strange thing for God to refer to himself in the plural, right? And, and thousands, literally thousands of times in the Bible, God refers to himself in the singular That's interesting. There's four times in the Bible he refers to himself in plural, and one of them is in in the creation of the world. Apparently, the three persons of the Godhead were part of God's creation. God's creating everything. It's really interesting. Okay, how about this one? This is one of those messianic prophecies. So this is from that guy Isaiah that I was talking about. So this is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And that's what he says. It's Isaiah 48. He says, "'Come near me and listen to this. "'From the first announcement I've not spoken in secret.'" At the time it happens, I'm here. This is this part. And now the sovereign Lord, anytime you see a capital, when you see Lord in all capitals, that's Yahweh. That's the name that God, God told us was his name. Moses said, what's your name? He said, Yahweh. means I am, or I am that I am. So that's, that's, that's different than uh, capital L and lowercase o-r-d. That's like master, Lord, master, right? But when it's all capitals, that's... That's Yahweh. That's God's name. So here it is. I am now the, so- and now the sovereign Lord, which is God the Father, has sent me, this is a messianic prophecy, God the Son, endowed with his Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. You look at it, all three persons of the Godhead are right there. How about this one? This is interesting that Jesus actually quoted, this is another one from Isaiah, Jesus actually quoted this in Luke chapter 4. He said, this is a prophecy about me. Jesus said that. Here it is. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, right, is on me, the, the Messiah, the coming Messiah, God the Son, because the Lord, God the Father, has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. It's interesting. You see all three of them there, Old Testament stuff. How about this one? We'll jump into the New Testament. This is interesting. This is at the very beginning of Luke. This is when an angel is talking to Mary and said, Mary, you're going to be pregnant with the Son of God. Imagine that, right? This is what It says, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit, which is God the Holy Spirit, will come on you, Mary, and the power of the Most High, God the Father, will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. It's God the Son. See all three of them right there, eh? How about this one? This is the most obvious one. This is the clearest one. You may have seen this. This is Jesus' baptism. It's in Matthew chapter three says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, God, the son, so Jesus physically right there. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the spirit of God, God, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and alighting him. And then a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love with him. I'm well, pleased." That's God, the father of all right there, right? You have Jesus physically being dunked down into water. And as he comes back out of the water, you see the Holy Spirit descending on him. And then you hear the voice of the father saying, it's my son whom I love with them. I'm well pleased. All right there. How about one more? This is in uh, the beginning of Acts. So this is when Jesus has died on the cross and he's risen. And he's about to ascend up into heaven. Okay. And Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is what he says. It says, he, God, the son, Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father, God the Father, has set by his own authority. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's interesting, isn't it? Like you look back and you go, wow. Like many times, that's just a few. Many times do you see this plurality of, in God, the three persons of the Godhead. How do we explain this? You know? Well, God is one, and yet there seems to be three parts to him, all of which are equally God. I really believe this. An honest reading of the Bible shows that God is three and one, that he's a tri unity he's a trinity, right? You guys heard that word before? The word trinity is actually not in the Bible anywhere. It's not in the Bible. The word trinity actually comes from a guy named Tertullian, funny name, but a guy named Tertullian. He lived around 200 AD, so a long, long time ago, when he was trying to wrap his mind around who God is, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's the one that said, it's like there's a tri-unity. He, smashed, he actually made up this word. He smashed those words together. And he said, he's a trinity, But the word Trinity is actually nowhere in the Bible. And yet the concept, the concept of the Trinity is all over. The evidence of God as being a Trinity is all over the Bible. So look back at our definition. Look back at the the definition that we talked about. God is one God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each of the three shares fully the one divine essence or being. God's not simply unity, but eternally exists in rich, loving fellowship as the one and only God. Let's dissect this a little bit. Like, let's jump into this. Let's make sure that we are, or that we're all on the same page. Like, what is person? What is essence? What is being? Well, I like how, uh, so like person, for example. Let's start there. Person, what does that mean that God is three persons? Does that mean he's human? Does he, like, because that's what I think of when I think of a person, right? That he's human. It's not what it means. I like how this guy Driscoll said it. He said, what it means is that each member of the Trinity thinks, acts, acts, feels, speaks, and relates because they're persons. They're not impersonal forces. God has each of the persons of the Godhead has personality, right? As opposed to being an impersonal force. What's an impersonal force? Like, the, think of the force from Star Wars, right? That's not what God's like. He's not like this mysterious force that Jedi's, get, like super Christians get. That's not what God is. God is a person who thinks Acts, feels, speaks, relates. He has personality. And each person of the Godhead is distinct from the others. So the Father's not the Son. And the Son's not the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. They're distinct. They're different. There's diversity in their roles. There's diversity in their relationship with each other. And there's diversity in their relationship with the world, with creation. And yet, there's one God there's not three gods. He has one essence or one being, like who he is, his essence, is being, who he is, is one, it's united. And so the father is fully God, 100%, completely and totally and fully God. When you experience the father, you experience the fullness of the Godhead. The Son is completely and totally and fully God. When you experience the Son, you experience the fullness of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is 100% totally, completely God. When you experience the Holy Spirit living inside of us, if we're a follower of Jesus, incredible truth, you experience the fullness of the Godhead. And yet there's not three gods, but there's one God. Remember Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, right? Not three gods, but one God. It's crazy, right? Like you step back and you go, wow, I don't understand that, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know what you're thinking, but I think I don't understand that. I believe it, but I don't understand it. Why? Well, because every life form that we have in our existence is one person and one essence, right? Right? Like everything that we experience is united, is one. God is unique, though. God is different. He's got one essence, one being, all shared equally and totally by three persons. It's crazy. It's crazy. And we use all kinds of different metaphors to, to try to explain it. All of them fall short, right? I, I'm just being honest with you. All of them fall short. But we say, you know, it's like an egg right? You got a shell, and you got the white, and you got the yolk. That's what God, but you got one egg. That's what it's like. That's what God's like. Or you go, it's like an apple. You know, apple's got the skin, and it's got like the white part, and it's got the seeds, but it's one apple. That's what God's like. Or we go, you know what it's like? It's like water. You know, water can be gas It could be liquid. It could be solid. That's what God's like. Listen, I don't have anything against those metaphors. I think they can be helpful in understanding kind of who God is as Trinity. But I'll tell you this, they all fall short. And when you take them to their logical end, and again, don't hear me like I'm totally against these because I think it does help us in a way understand who God is. But when you take them to the total end, they actually end in a heretical understanding of who God is, every single one of them, because some of them do a really good job of bringing out the oneness, the unity of God. Others of them do a really good job of bringing out the the, the distinction of God, the three persons in God. But all of them brought to their logical end and in heresy. And and I want to quickly say this because I think it's important. Over the last 2,000 years, there's been all sorts of distortions to this truth that we believe about God, that God has eternally existed as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and yet each of them shares the one same divine essence, divine being. And when a person twists that, when a person distorts that, it's called heresy. You guys have heard that word before, heresy. All heresy is, it's a, it's a belief that's strongly at odds with what's broadly and generally accepted. That's what a heresy is. If you look up heresy, that's what it is. It's a belief that's strongly at odds with what's broadly and generally accepted. And a heresy within the context of the church is a belief that's strongly at odds with what the church has believed, united, believed for the last hundreds and hundreds of years. And all I want to say about this is this, and and I'll be quick with this, but I think it's important. Over the last 2,000 years, there's been lots of different groups who are unable to accept what the Bible says about God. They go, I don't know, I don't understand it. it. It needs more explaining. And what happens is they raise up somebody Who's got, who's got these so-called inspired teachings, and then these inspired teachings, other people gather around them, and they become more important than the Bible to them. So I'll give, you, I'll give you two very clear examples. One of them, a guy named Charles Taze Russell. Essentially, for all intents and purposes, he's the guy that founded Jehovah's Witness, the religion Jehovah's Witness. and his publication, The Watchtower, what it is basically, essentially, What it is, is a heresy called Arianism that was condemned as a heresy as like a not not how the Bible describes God 1,700 years ago (laughs) in the fourth century. That's all Jehovah's Witnesses is. It's a repackaging of something the church said 1,700 years ago. No, that ain't right. Like, we dealt with that. There's a guy named Arian who believed this. They dealt with this. In fact, they had church councils about this. And they came out and they said, no, that's not what the Bible says what the Bible says is God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each one completely and totally God, and yet there's one God, one essence. Here's another one. How about this one? A guy named Joseph Smith. It's what happened with him. He's the founder of Mormonism, and his book, the Book of Mormon, basically is a heresy called tritheism repackaged, which is another heresy that was condemned 1,700 years ago in the, third, in the fourth century as well. See, guys, we get in problems when we go this isn't enough. This isn't enough. Remember last week we said, one of the things that we said about the Bible is it's sufficient for us. This, this is what God says you need to know about me. Maybe you want to know more, but this is sufficient. This is what you need to know. And we get in trouble when we go, yeah, but I still got questions. Uh, God spoke to me and he said this, this, and this. And then we raise up our teachings and we lower this, and this becomes more important than this. That's where heresies come from. We repackage them every so often. But all those things were dealt with 1,700 years ago at these church councils. That's why it's so important for us last week to start off and say, this is our foundation. For the last 2,000 years of the church, this is the foundation, right? And this is what we build our lives on. So there's lots more that we could say about that. For time's sake, I got to move on. You'll get a chance to dig into a little bit deeper in your grace groups this week and kind of wrestle with some of that stuff. But I want to go on to another question. So how does God exist? That was the first question. What's God like? Like, what's, what's he like? Like, who is he? What's, what's his character? Like what's he about? What's important to him? What's his nature like? Well, it's really interesting. Here, here's what I want to do. I want I throw, throw all of those up on the screen at one time. Good. I want you to see these and I want, to just, I want to just go down through this. This is a good list. This is not an exhaustive list, but this is a good list of who God is as he presents himself in the Bible. And I want to just go through this quickly. I'll be really quick, but I want you to see all those. I want you to just like be in awe of who our God is. So he's independent. He's certainly not dependent on us, right? He's completely independent to do whatever he wants to do. He's unchangeable. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He never changes. He's eternal. He always has been and he always will be. We're not eternal. We've not always has been. (laughs) We always will be from this point on. We'll live somewhere, right? But he always was and he always will. Try to wrap your brain around that, right? He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere all the time. Think about that. The ubiquity of God he knows everything. He sees everything. Even when doors are shut, he sees it all, right? He's united. He's in perfect harmony with every part of who he is. Perfect harmony. All of these qualities in perfect united harmony. He's all powerful. Everything is within his power should he display it, should he choose to display it. It's all within his power. He's all powerful. He's spiritual. So the the theological word is incorporeal. He's non-physical. He's spirit, of course, except for when Jesus walked the earth. But God is spiritual. He's all-knowing. He fully knows all things. He's also perfectly wise. So not only does he know all things, but he has complete and perfect understanding of all things. He also knows how everything goes together. He's faithful and truthful. In him there's no lies. There's no deceit. He'll always do what he promises. Think about that as opposed to the devil. The devil is a liar, a deceiver. God is always faithful, right? He always does what he promises. He's good. He's inherently good. What we call good, we call good because he made us and he's good. You'll have to listen to that one online and think about that one. He's loving. I'll talk about that more here in a second. He's merciful, gracious, patient. He's holy. He's completely without blemish or sin, completely pure, completely uncontaminated. He's righteous and just. Listen, he always acts according to what's right. Sometimes we don't know what's right, right? And then even if we know, sometimes we don't act on what's right. He always acts on what's right. How about this one? He's jealous. It's kind of a weird thing to think of as a positive quality with God, but what it means is he wants all of us and he deserves all of us, right? He's the only one who deserves all of us. He's a jealous God. He wants us to make him number one. How about this? He's free. He could do whatever he wants. Sometimes we want to put him in a box and be like, no, God, you should do this, right? He's free. He could do whatever it is he wants to do. He's perfect, Think about this. He completely possesses all excellent qualities and lacks no part of any qualities that would be desirable to have. He's perfect, and he's beautiful, and he's glorious. He's amazing. He's majestic. He's splendid. Do you know what the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible is? The passage in the Bible that's most quoted by other passages in the Bible It's interesting, kind of just a little trivia thing. The most quoted passage in the Bible by other parts of the Bible is Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And you think, well, that's kind of like an obscure little verse. Like, why why is that important? It's important because Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is God's description of himself to us. So he actually describes who he is to us, and it's quoted over and over and over again in the Bible. This is what it says. We'll throw it up on the screen. This This is very interesting. He says, so he's talking to Moses and says, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, again, that's, that's his name. That's Yahweh, 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 the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. It's interesting. As we ask the question, like, what's he like? What's God like? Well, how does he describe himself? I think that's a good question. That that guy that I referenced earlier, Driscoll, Mark Driscoll, he talked about this. And some of the things that he pulled out of this are just so insightful. I want to share some of it with you. So how does God describe himself? Well, first, he describes himself as a person. That's what, that's what Lord means. That's his name, Yahweh. It means I am or I am that I am. What it does is it signifies that he always was and he always will be, right? He's eternal and yet he's not some sort of impersonal force like in Star Wars. He's personal. He has personality. He has a name and he wants to relate with us. Isn't that interesting? How does he describe himself as compassionate? He cares about us. He deeply cares about us. Compassion, it's like, it's that pit in your stomach. It's like wrenching. It mean, literally means wrenching of your guts. When he sees the pain, the turmoil, and the hardship that we go through, he feels it in his gut. It eats him up. How does he describe himself? As gracious. He's helpful, merciful, and he shows undeserving favor to his people. Do you, do you know that you and I don't deserve God's favor? <laughs> Like, do you feel that? Like, I I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've done this week or your life, but none of us, we're all in the same boat here, none of us are deserving of his favor. It's actually an important thought for us to have. Like, we need to know that. We need to realize that. He's gracious to us. He gives it to us anyway, even though we don't deserve it. How about this one? He says he's slow to anger. He's not irritable. He's not volatile like the gods, you know, the, the Roman or the Greek gods were thought to be. He's not angry. He's not easily angered. Only after continual, habitual rebellion and sin does God get angry. But He's long suffering in it. He's not quickly. He's not easily angered. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He's lovingly faithful. What a promise! That that word in the that word love in the Hebrew it's a word it's, it's actually called hesed. It's a loaded word. Like there, there's there's so much meaning in it. It says it means he's it's constant, passionate, overflowing, relentlessly pursuing, extravagant, limitless, trustworthy, merciful love. That's how he sees you. That's how he looks at you. Isn't that amazing? He's lovingly faithful. He describes himself as maintaining love to thousands. It can be translated a different way that makes more sense to me. It can be translated as keeping loyal love for thousands of generations. Think about that. He's dependable. He's trustworthy. He's constant. He's worthy of our faith for thousands of generations. He describes himself as forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. I said it earlier, he's fully aware of everything that goes on, like everything behind closed doors. I was thinking about that this week, you know, just the, the wickedness that goes on all around us that very few people know about. He sees all of that, every bit of it, all at once, right? And yet he's quick to forgive us. He desires, instead of condemning us and separating us from him, he desires to welcome, welcome us in and forgive our rebellion and our sin if we confess and if we turn away from it. And then last one, he's just. Think about that. He ultimately deals with evil because he's holy, because he's righteous, and because he's just. In the end, all who reject his love and forgiveness will receive the punishment that their wickedness deserves. And we hear that and we go, I don't like to think about that part of God. I don't like to think about the justice of God, you know, punishing evil and and sending some people to hell. I don't don't like to think about that. But listen, his holiness demands it, and his love demands it. We can't separate that from who God is. This, This is how God presents himself to us. I want you to just step back, like take that in for a second. This is this is what he says. I want you to know about me. I'm personal. I have a name, and I want to relate with you. I'm compassionate. I feel your pain deep within me. I'm gracious to you. I don't give you what you deserve. I actually give you what you don't deserve. I'm slow to anger. It takes a lot. God's patient with us. I abound in love and faithfulness. He loves us more than we could ever imagine, even when we're unfaithful. Another beautiful promise in the Bible. Even when we're unfaithful, he still remains faithful to us maintaining love for thousands of generations, forgiving wickedness and sin and rebellion if we want him to, if we ask him to, and not leaving the guilty unpunished. Like, that's who God is to us. And I stop and think about that, and I think, it's amazing. It's it's unfathomable. He's so big, he's so huge, he's so beyond me, and yet he wants me to know him. And I'm the apple of his eye, and so are you. It's an amazing thought. So last question, then we're done. So what? Like, What, what do we do? What, what difference does it make in our lives? Well, there's a few things. I, you're going to get a chance to talk about this in, in your grace group a little bit more, but let me, just, let me just highlight four things. So what? First thing, it makes like what difference it makes in my life. I, I think of those things, and it gives me incredible joy. I think about who he is and how far beyond me he is. And I know my own heart. I know how rotten I've been in my life, how many rebellious, sinful, bad decisions I've intentionally made that I knew were not pleasing to him. And he loves me. And he wants me to know him and have a relationship with him. It's like, there's such joy that comes from that. And he gives us a choice, you know? Like he doesn't, he offers it to everybody, But for us to have access to him, we have to choose him. We have to make him number one in our lives. We have to choose to follow him. There's this joy that wells up inside of me. And then I think about like all of the garbage going on in life. Like we all got garbage going on in life, right? It's put in context when I think, hold on, it's all going to go away one day. There's a God who's huge. and He loves me and he's eternal. And he's going to take me to live with him forever one day. It's powerful. First thing I feel is joy when I think about that. Second thing I feel is humility because I think he's so big <laughs> and I'm so small. Like I am, I am less than a gnat to him and yet he loves me. And, yet, and there's so much complexity. I think about how could God be three in one? There's so much complexity. There's so many things I don't understand. But it reminds me of this passage in Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There's just things that he keeps. He doesn't explain to us. And that's okay. I may want more answers. He doesn't give them to us. They're beyond us. I couldn't understand them anyway. There's a humility that I very naturally feel when I think about who he is and how great he is. And then it makes me want to know him deeper. You know? I think about this incredible God and how compassionate and gracious and loving he is. And I think, man, I want to know him. Like, he wants to know me. I want to know him, too. And then I think, I want to tell others about him too. You know, there's so much confusion about God. I don't know what you grew up learning about God, that he's angry, that he doesn't like you, that he's your enemy. God loves you. There's so much confusion. I want to help people get to know him better too, right? And then the last thing, so what, what difference does it make in my life? It makes me want to step back and worship him. When I think about who he is and who I am, The only appropriate response is to worship. He's so great. I'm so insignificant. My response is to worship him. And so I want to end our time.